Um, would you turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4? Today we're going to pick up in verse 12. Um, once again, I've, I've said this several times now, but you'll remember that um, 1 Peter is written in three sections. We've talked about the first section up through uh, 2 chapter 11. Uh, and we've just finished the second section, which Peter gives this series of instructions. And now uh, we're returning to this third and final section. Peter's tying together things. He's pulling together his main point, his main themes. And he's, he's giving us the final push for his, his aim in writing this. So today let's pray and then we'll turn to the text. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your provision for us and bringing us your truth and your life. By the power of your Holy Spirit, would you impress it on our hearts? Drive it deep into us. Take out our hearts of stone and make them hearts of flesh. And Father, would you, you use your word like a two-edged sword to divide soul from spirit, to make us new before you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear God's word from 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian... Let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Amen. Have you ever been unprepared for a test? Or maybe if you've been a teacher, you've had students unprepared for tests. Uh, in seminary, we have to take three semesters of Hebrew. And Hebrew is a hard language. Um, it's not my favorite classes I've ever taken. But I remember my, my first day of Hebrew three, I sat down. We were kind of enjoying, we were thinking, it's the first day of class, it's going to be easy, we're going to talk about the syllabus, that sort of thing. But then the professor started handing out an exam on the 500 most common words in the Hebrew Bible. Now, theoretically, I had learned all of those in Hebrew 1 and 2, but theory doesn't always translate to practice. You may have heard of fight or flight, but there is a third option, freeze, and uh, that's what I did. When I realized what was about to happen, because I knew that I was not ready for this test and that I was probably going to fail it. And as it would happen, I did fail that exam. Needless to say, um, it was not my best day, and I failed it really bad. Mercifully, the professor allowed us to retake it, partially because I wasn't the only one there that had, <laughs> had failed miserably. So uh, we, re we retook it, but I, I did learn an important lesson that day. Always be prepared. Always be prepared. 
Today we're talking about a test. But it's not a, a test that you would have traditionally in school. It's a test of faith. And the goal is to determine whether or not you are in fellowship with Jesus Christ. And Peter wants you to be prepared for that test. This is his exhortation to you. He doesn't want you to be surprised by the test that is coming. So here's what you need to know to pass the test. To, to steal a phrase from a friend, here's your sermon in a sentence. You ready? Share in Christ's sufferings to share in Christ's judgment. Share in Christ's sufferings to share in Christ's judgment. Look at verse 12. Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. So when Peter begins this third section, he, he immediately recalls some of what he said in chapter 1. Remember his, his talk about fire and trials in chapter 1? And there's really close parallels between these two sections. So in chapter 1, Peter describes this fiery trial, and he tells us the purpose for it. The purpose in chapter 1 of the fiery trial is to test us and to refine us. But now what he's doing is he's making practical application and he's telling us what the test looks like. He's telling us not to be surprised as if a strange thing were happening to us. Maybe literally you could translate it as if a stranger were meeting you. Why? Because this fiery trial is not strange at all given our status in Christ. Look at verse 13. He says, Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you also may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So here we get one of, one of the New Testament's most important concepts. You may have heard the word koinonia. Peter tells us that our fiery trial is closely connected to Christ's own trial. We share in Christ's sufferings. If you have a King James, we participate in Christ's sufferings. And what is the, the purpose of this participation in suffering? The answer is that we're called to participate in suffering, to participate in glory. That's what we call union with Christ. And that's a, that's a central concept in the New Testament. This might be a good devotional practice for you one time. Just look up the number of times that Paul uses the phrase, in Christ. I'll tell you, it's over 200 times. This is a central concept in the New Testament. This doctrine, union with Christ, is the foundation of our salvation. Because we are united with Christ from eternity and predestination, the Father unites us to him covenantally in justification, and the Spirit unites us with him vitally in sanctification. At every step of salvation, we're being brought together with Christ. We're being united to Christ. I'm declared righteous on the basis of my union with Christ, who purchased redemption for me. And on that same basis, I abide with Christ in holiness as a branch abides in a vine. Let's think about that for a moment. Jesus calls himself the vine, and he calls us the branches. But how does that work? Well, a vine feeds the branches. The vine draws up water from the ground. It draws up nutrition from the ground, and it gives it to the branches. But, but the vine doesn't selectively feed the branch. It doesn't just give part of its nutrition. No, they're organically connected. Whatever the vine receives, the branch also receives. For the branch to truly abide in the vine, the branch must receive everything that the vine offers. 
often we try to pick and choose what we get from Jesus. In our flesh, what we only want from Jesus what, what suits our own preferences, what suits our own predilections, what suits our own desires, instead of what he offers us. This is a rampant problem, even among evangelical Christians, because we have really bad discernment. We support anything and everything with a Christian label on it without testing it against Scripture. We hop and skip around the Scriptures to pick out verses that make us feel good. We're tempted by prosperity preachers that tell us, who tell us that Jesus wants us to be healthy and wealthy. But Christian, here's the hard truth. God isn't interested in making you feel good. He's interested in making you holy. In fact, he promises you the opposite of good feelings. He promises that you will suffer. But he also promises that your suffering, united with the suffering of Jesus Christ, will lead to eternal rejoicing. When you are united to Christ, you are united to all of Christ. You're united to his humiliation on the cross, and you're united to united to his exaltation in heaven. You are united to his descent into hell, and you're united to his ascent into heaven. We have foolish and weak hearts, and they desire comfort, and they want to enjoy exaltation without the humiliation. They want to enjoy life without death. They go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. When we talk about resurrection, you need to understand that resurrection actually implies death. The only way that you can have resurrection is to die first. That's what Jesus calls us to, to die with him. So we share in Christ's sufferings to share in Christ's glory, to share in Christ's sufferings to share in Christ's judgment. Let's look at each of those phrases in turn. First, we'll talk about sharing Christ's sufferings, and then we'll turn to sharing in Christ's judgment. First, share in Christ's sufferings. Look at verse 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. So here Peter is borrowing directly from the words of Jesus. It's, it's kind of an open question whether he's quoting a, a gospel, maybe uh, Matthew or Luke, or if he's just remembering what Jesus said because he was there. But either way, it's, it's a direct reference to what Jesus says in the Beatitudes. Listen to what, this is what Jesus says in the Gospel of Luke. He says, Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. And so you see how these go together. But notice the application of Christ's words that Peter makes. He says you, you are blessed when you, your name is reviled. That's what Jesus says. You are blessed when your name is reviled. But Peter says you are blessed when Christ's name is reviled. What's the connection? Well, once again, it's union with Christ. Since you are connected to Christ, since you are joined to Christ, you have a new name. You're called a Christian. And if you are a Christian, the glory and the Spirit of God rest upon you. In other words, when you are reviled, when you are insulted for your faith, 
That is evidence of your union with him, that you belong to Jesus. It's evidence that the Holy Spirit dwells in you. Our tendency is to get this backwards. Throughout history, whenever Christians have abandoned biblical truth, whenever Christians have abandoned faithfulness, it's almost always associated with a desire to appeal to the world. It's almost always associated with a desire to appeal to unbelievers. The very first liberals in the 19th century had this concern. They said, all this stuff about miracles, that doesn't work in the modern world. Modern science tells us that miracles like the virgin birth, you know, they don't happen. Modern history tells us that all these old stories, they're just myths. Nobody can believe any of that stuff anymore. So what did these people do? They reinvented the whole Christian faith along modern lines. They used the same language, the same words, but they gave it a whole new meaning and actually stripped it of its true meaning. More contemporary example. How many evangelicals profane the worship of God with gimmicks to appeal to the unbeliever? Do dances and shows and, and all sorts of things just to try to get people in the doors, just to fill seats. It's an appeal to those who do not understand, those who do not have their eyes enlightened, an appeal to those who are lost. But here's the fact of the matter. Christianity is and always has been antithetical to the ways of the world. What we're doing right now is one of the weirdest things that people have ever done. We're reading from a book that is 2,000 years old, and that's the newest part. And we stake our lives on its truthfulness. We worship a God who died on a cross. And we sing about that like that's the best thing that ever happened. That our God died and that's such a good thing. When, believe, when unbelievers, when, when people who are not Christians walk in here, we should go out of our way to welcome them warmly. We should go out of our way to love them deeply. But ultimately, we can't make what we believe and what we do make any sense to them. That's a work of the Holy Spirit. Christian, you should not be ashamed of any of that. When someone asks you the reason for your hope, you offer them the gospel without apologizing, without equivocating, without backing down. You say, I have a hope. I have hope because I worship a God who took on human flesh and who suffered and died on a cross to pay for my sins and who was raised to life after three days. And I have hope because that same God calls me to suffer with him, to put my own flesh to death, to turn from sin in order that I too can be raised from the dead. That is odd in our world. And that is uncomfortable when it confronts the ways of the world. But it's what God has called you to if you are to be united to his son, to share in his sufferings. Second, we're called to share in Christ's sufferings, to share in Christ's judgment. Look at verse 17. Peter says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So why does judgment begin at the household of God? That's kind of an odd thing, and Peter just kind of assumes that we all understand that. Well, first of all, it's probably wise to consider what it means to be a part of God's house. And so listen to what Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 3. It says, Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant 
to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. So once again, God's house is defined as union with Christ. To be in God's house is to be submitted to the son who is the head over the house. To be under his headship. And so Peter is saying that in the world there are two kinds of people. And those two kinds of people face two different kinds of judgment. Well, that leads to another question. What does verse 18 mean? What does he mean that the righteous are scarcely saved? Well, first of all, he's not saying that Christians are barely saved. It's not, saying that, it's not like he's saying if we work really hard and if we do all these right things, then we might just be able to convince God to accept us. Instead, what he's talking about is the way that we are saved through suffering. You could probably translate that phrase scarcely saved as maybe saved with difficulty. The idea is if, if you think about picking up a big rock and setting it on a shelf, just barely getting it up because it's so difficult. That's the idea that's being communicated there. And the difficulty that Peter is talking about is actually Christ's work. That's the difference between those inside the house and those outside the house. Those inside God's house and those outside of it. Those who belong to the house of God have been saved with difficulty. They've been saved by the suffering and the death of Christ. Those who are outside of the house have not. So back to the original question. Why does judgment begin with the house of God? It's because judgment begins with Christ. Jesus took on flesh and became human like us. And humans, every single one of them, are subject to God's judgment. But what is the verdict rendered on Jesus when he is judged? God declares him righteous. God declares him clean, holy. And for those who are in Christ, united to him in his sufferings, you receive the same judgment. Righteous, clean, holy. And that's not just some future possibility. If you are in Christ, this is your state now before God. Notice verse 17, Peter says, it is already time. It is time now for judgment to begin. And it has. Now that's good news. Because we get to rejoice as the household of God and the gospel of God. But it's also sobering. Because even now, as God declares his own people, his household righteous in the name of Christ, he's also preparing a verdict to those outside of his house, to unbelievers. This passage has an urgency about it. The time for judgment is happening now, even as we speak. Every moment someone dies under the curse and is judged before God. You see, too often we treat the church like a city under siege. What we want to do is we want to get behind our city walls and hole up and shoot arrows down at the enemy. But that's the opposite of what the Bible describes. Remember when Jesus says that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church? Who's on the offensive? It's us. The church is at the gate. The church is laying siege to hell. The church is the one who is trying to break people out. We're on the offensive. The church isn't trying to keep hell out of itself. No, the church is trying to get into hell. The church is trying to free its prisoners. It's a liberation mission. So if you're one of those people, if you're on the other side of that gate, if you're on the inside of hell, 
The church's work can look a lot like an attack to you. But I want you to understand that the church's mission is motivated by love of you. We want you to enjoy a righteous judgment in Christ, and we want you to share with him and with us a new life. For the believer, there's a twofold application. First, Peter tells us that in verse 19, to commit our souls to God while doing good. When trials come, when things get difficult, when the battle gets hot, we entrust ourselves to our sovereign creator who ordained those trials to test us. We seek to put our lives in line with the righteous verdict, the righteous judgment that we have received as the house of God. But second, we also have an urgent call to evangelism. Part of doing good is calling sinners to repentance and faith in Christ. Remember that we have union with all of Christ, with the whole Christ, with his sorrows and sufferings. We'll understand that one of Christ's sorrows, something that lays heavy on his heart, are those who are lost. It laid so heavy on his heart that he was willing to die for it. And as participants in Christ, we too are called to lay down our lives for the lost in evangelism. And in that, we share in Christ's judgment and we seek to bring Christ's righteous verdict to those who need it. Share in Christ's sufferings to share in Christ's judgment. But here's the bottom line. A lot of times, we think of Jesus Christ as an idea. We think of him as a life philosophy. We think of him as a, as a moral code. But he's, he's none of those things. Jesus Christ is a person. He's God made flesh. He's the suffering king who bled and who died and who rose again for your salvation. And if you want the new life that he offers, you have to take the whole thing. Fundamentally, the relationship between Christ and his church is a covenantal union. It's a marriage. When you get married, you marry the whole person. You marry their flaws and their quirks as well as their goodness. Well, Jesus does the same for us. He receives us in spite of our flaws. And better yet, even better than your own spouse can do, he cleanses you of those flaws. But if we want that, we also have to receive him for who he is. And that means receiving his suffering, because his suffering is ultimately what makes us well. So who is your Lord? Whose life do you share? Brothers and sisters, Christ calls you to live your life in his life. Your call is to receive his life by faith, to receive his verdict of righteousness by faith, to trust him and his sufferings. And he promises that if you do that, if you trust him, you will also enjoy and share and participate in his glories. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.